Father, we ask that you would teach us in such a way that your praise would ever be on our lips. The steps of our life would be a dance with you that you are leading. That our hearts would know how to surrender more fully to you day after day. Father, take all of us, all that we are, every part of our being, and our gifts and our talents and all the things that we've even claimed for ourselves. But at the end of the day, Lord, Father, the earth is yours and everything in it. So we lay ourselves and all that we do back before you and ask that you would find glory and have your way. Be our Savior and our Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. As we continue this semester walking through um, some of the different psalms, we had also said at the beginning we wanted to engage um, worship in different ways and celebrating how we come before God in different ways. God has spoken to us. We talked about this last week as well in, in, in the chapel about um, through art. And one of the things we want to do that with that this morning is invite a special guest to lead us in that. Uh, Jake, if you'd come forward, I'll, I'll give him our introduction as you're up here with us. Um, some of you will know Jake very well, some of you not as well if you're newer to this community. Jake Van Wyke is a full-time working artist now, operating out of his studio near his farm near Ireton. He recently retired after working at Dort for 23 years. An admitted workaholic, Jake claims he has a short attention span with a whole lot of interests. He made the large clay figure that stands outside the classroom building, the tile work in the lobby of this building, B.J. Hahn, and made the clay tile and installed the assemblage with David Versluis, who designed the piece and is in the new science building in the grand entry there. He has presented his power of the biblical metaphor chapel in many schools, churches, and community centers throughout Canada and the U.S. I ask you to please help me in welcoming this morning, Professor Jake Van Wyck. Well, good morning. It's, it's great to be here. I stand here and I think I, maybe I bit off more than I could chew. For the last year and a half, I've been in my studio listening to old school rock and roll. I have speakers in every room, I play it loud, and I spend a lot of time producing art on my own. Um, uh, now standing in front of you, it's, uh, it's, it's a little daunting. But I know I'm among friends. And I've done a variation of this chapel before, so I'd like to talk about art, show you a little bit of my work, uh, highlight uh, one of my favorite artists who I try to channel at all times, uh, Vincent Van Gogh, and actually make a pot for you uh, this morning. The power of biblical metaphor. A metaphor is something that we can understand, obviously, on a simple scale, of, not a simple scale, on a grand scale, but on a very obvious scale. Christ himself is both is a rock, he is living water, he is the bread of life, he is our salvation. Uh, the crown of God's creation. And I'd like to begin with Psalm 19, 1 through 4. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. We've heard this before often, and yet when you think about it, 
It's as if the Bible is saying nature has, has a voice, that it's, it's mystery, it's omnipresent, it's all around us, we often take it for granted. Uh, as an artist, nature for me is critically important. I believe nature is a metaphor for God's grace. When I do work, whatever it may be, from the simplest pot to, to grand paintings, I try to be, it's like a prayer. Uh, last year and a half, I didn't realize how much work prayer was. But indeed, there's a mystery in doing art. There's a magic there. Hopefully, you'll be able to see it. But there's a magic that I cannot completely control. And we're all kind of control freaks. But I have to let it happen. A detail of a piece that I've done uh, called The Mackerel Sky. I don't believe you can really copy nature. Uh, I think it's foolish to copy nature, but you have to start somewhere to copy it, surely. Uh, you can take photographs. We take a lot of photographs. Our smartphones are filled with photos. I'll turn on the side. And we can, there's a large landscape image. It's not the same. You have to get out there to experience it and to know that this is God's creation that's ever-changing, constantly rich and beautiful. In so many ways, it's beyond belief. Beyond belief. It's a, it's a line that Van Gogh will, states often in a, in a clip that we'll see momentarily. So I've included some of my work. Uh, the first few years I was here, I was impressed by the big sky, that sort of compression of land and sky. And we know that Iowa is not flat. I've heard people say, oh, you live in Iowa. Oh, it's boring. It's flat. You must have been driving through Illinois or Nebraska. <laughs> Iowa is not flat. It has these wonderful rolling hills. So I tried to capture that, capture it. And I let the piece sort of happen. The piece sort of tells me what to do a little bit. And I stand aside and I'm amazed at what it's saying. It's like, I'm a catalyst. I made this. You are the arbiter of your work, whatever scholarship or research you do. Hopefully you have mentors that help you do that. But in the end, this piece has a life of its own. It's crazy. It's not voodoo. This piece uh, started as a dead tree at Sandy Hollow as a sketch. It developed into this drawing. Artists use design rules, in this case, asymmetrical balance. There's this strong diagonal. Remember diagonal, Lance? We talked about diagonals in a critique. It's a key to visual success. It's interesting. So I have this repeat with variety. It has to do with the fact that the shapes formed by the branches are all different, and different in size, in position, in context. So you've heard, I say it all the time. This piece I now call, and the rocks and trees shall praise his name. Something positive. How can this piece be praising? Anybody? What, I've listed some design terms. What other means does this piece communicate praise? Anybody? It points to God. Points to God. Points to God. What else? About this piece. Don't make it complicated. Kindergartners get this. I'm sorry. Color. Very good. Yes, color. Color is, is the, probably the most primary way to communicate emotion. We are created in the aesthetic dimension. Pastor Bart 
last week said, the scriptures open up possibilities and an invitation to experience God from the Psalms with doubt and joy. I suggest experience God and his nature with mystery and joy. And color has this physiological effect on us. So with artwork, we don't have the option not to engage. It's a command, just like it is a command to praise God, to be involved, figure it out. And sometimes it's difficult and confusing. So uh, I like trees. I know trees. Uh, trees that have a lot of movement, um, to be alive, uh, which is on, on the right side, is a gestural approach, very physical. I like physical activity. I'm an ex-wrestler, so I still remain <laughs> physical. And you can do that in the work. These are brand new pieces that I've been doing the last couple weeks. Uh, Exeter tree, and then on the right, uh, called center. This is a piece called Seraphim 2015. It's an old concept. It's an old piece that I colorized, and I printed three different colors on top of it. Uh, I'm very happy with it. It's about the mystery of celestial power. I've never seen an angel. I don't dream about angels. Have you? Is this, a possi is this what an angel looks like? I don't know. But it speaks to me somehow. There's a mystery about it. And then these are some brand new pieces that are abstract that I'm really excited about. They have the gestural line and gestural movement. Uh, they're not exactly nature, but they take natural form uh, and natural movement. And let's look at this piece, the mackerel sky. I'll show you detail. Uh, there's a lot of death going on here. Uh, I'm a, I'm a part-time farmer, uh, sheep will get caught in a fence looking for greener grass on the other side. Uh, I find animals are, are a metaphor for people. She had plenty to eat, but she wanted to get to the other side, stuck her head in and choked herself to death. So uh, I did this piece some years back. It uh, is a large piece. It involves this, uh, this bed, sort of a metaphor for, for pain and death and sickness, but also a metaphor for ecstasy, for human life. Enjoy. Well, spent several months doing this piece, and it goes back to my background with the farm. I'm sort of uh, impressed with, with uh, uh, abandoned uh, uh, homesteads and farmsteads. Every chance I get, I'll trek out there and take photographs and just check it out and just be part of that experience. Well, my father died five years before. If you notice, there are uh, prints of, of hands in the, in the piece. Uh, it's all about handwork. As a Dutch immigrant, we were taught to work circles around everyone else. And my older brother walked into the studio, saw the piece, and immediately said, that's dad. I was not consciously aware of it. It's a requiem for my father. Hit me like a ton of bricks. Is art that, that powerful that it can speak without even knowing? Consciously? Yes, I think it is. So this proved it to me, and I've done some other larger pieces that uh, it's almost like, did I do this? Other people are responding in ways that I could never imagine. It's the power and the mystery of art. Well, I'd like to talk about Van Gogh just a bit. Van Gogh is someone that uh, had a spiritual journey, even though the world celebrates Van Gogh as this James Dean, self-destructive, burn the candle at both ends, 
type of person, a unhealthy, obsessive artist. He did almost 1,000 paintings in less than 10 years. No question, he worked day and night. He was definitely a crazy workaholic. He, sta he states in his letters, I wrestle with nature long enough for her to tell me her secret. This is a cover of a book called Space for God by Don Postema. It's a great uh, uh, study book. And uh, a book that allows you to find space alone and by yourself. Work on that uh, right side of the brain. Spend time alone. In this piece, the sower, uh, Van Gogh breaks some rules. You, if you take photographs, you never have the, the main subject walking off the picture like this. And yet the sun is central here. It's not necessarily factual. In fact, as Pastor Bart said, art can sometimes have a greater ability to tell the truth than fact itself. The fact is when Van Gogh was uh, starting out in the Netherlands, son of a Dutch pastor, he wasn't getting support. His uncles were in the art business. They poo-pooed his work, and he was buried down, and it shows in this piece, doesn't it? He's a tree guy, right? Uh, the only church you see is an abandoned church, a ruin in the background. It's a very lonely uh, picture uh, if indeed it's true that art paint, artists paint what's on their heart. He was very depressed here. He went to the south of France, worked with the Impressionists, and produced works like this, amazing works. One of 15 views of an orchard. Notice the shadow of the trees. They don't follow with the sun. So it's not scientifically uh, accurate, factual, right? But uh, it works as an incredible design. Here's a detail. It's right here in Minneapolis. They're only Van Gogh. It's phenomenal. In the same way that I say, get with nature, experience it, get out there by yourself to engage in, in God's mystery, you got to do the same with art. you got to stop and engage it. Not just take a picture of it, have it on record. You have to stop and engage it and stand in the artist's space. It's really important. And if you do that with this piece, I think you'll be blown away. Of course, Starry Night is a piece that uh, probably his culminating piece. Dusk, it's also not accurate. It has both daylight and nighttime stars, the sun and the moon. They're all together. And yet it's this very powerful piece, probably his best-known piece. Notice that the church that's in the center is dark. Everything else is bright and all the houses uh, welcome you. This church in this southern uh, France, French uh, landscape does not exist there. It's a northern church. So he's bringing that down. It's a symbol. It's a dead symbol for him. It also repeats the spire of the cypress tree. So it's beautifully done. The colors are amazing. He uses blue and orange, which are compliments. Van Gogh wrote in his book, I think this is a great metaphor, complementary colors are like the union of a man and a woman. That's a great metaphor. I happened to be in, in, uh, in Goodwill a couple weeks ago. I, I go there every week to score on uh, records and tapes and the like, in old books. And I happened to find this book on Einstein. I simply uh, popped it open and, and, and I fell on this quote. Uh, I have a lot of quotes around the studio. Uh, one of them is, chance favors the prepared mind. 
And I, I read this quote, the most beautiful emotion from Einstein that we can experience is the mysterious. It is the fundamental emotion that stands at the cradle of all true art and science. So I'm not just talking about, about art and the mystery of art, but science too. In fact, every area of study and research and scholarship that you can engage in is part of this mystery and this beauty of God's world. Any of them. To whom this emotion of beauty and mystery is a stranger who can no longer wonder or stand wrapped in awe. No one liked Van Gogh's work when he was alive. Not his, not his uncles who were art dealers. His brother Theo was an art dealer in Paris. Nothing was sold other than one piece. It wasn't appreciated. It's not factual. And yet it's like a child looking at the stars, or if we're down and depressed and it's dark, and, and all of a sudden we have this bright, clear uh, firmament of stars, we're blown away. To whom this emotion of the mysterious is a stranger who can no longer wonder or stand wrapped in awe is as good as dead, a snuffed out candle. To sense that behind anything that can be experienced, there is something that our minds cannot grasp, whose beauty and sublimity reaches only indirectly is religion. It may not be the religion that we subscribe to, but religion is about subscribing to something beyond yourself that's transcendent. And artists do that too. So this piece is called the Langolai Bridge. It was painted in the, in the 1880s by Van Gogh. It encompasses all of that understanding of complementary color, asymmetrical balance, it's beautifully done. The bridge was actually destroyed in World War II. And it's this bridge that uh, is the meeting place to actually meet Van Gogh. So we're going to meet Van Gogh. It's a clip from Dreams by Akira Kurosawa, um, a, a famous director that affected a lot of major stars, Lucas, um, Star Wars guys. Who's that guy? George Lucas affected him as well. And it's portrayed by, uh, Van Gogh is portrayed by Martin Scorsese. We may know him as the director that directed very violent R-rated films. He also made uh, some music videos, it's like 10 years ago, uh, one on the Rolling Stones and one on Bob Dylan, my favorite, called No Direction Home. They're both in our library. If, uh, if I don't have it, <laughs> Uh, which is often, you could check it out as well. So let's meet Van Gogh. Juste 
sortir de l'asile des fous. Vous êtes Vincent Van Gogh, n'est-ce pas Why aren't you painting? To me, this scene is beyond belief. A scene that looks like a painting does not make a painting. If you take the time and look closely, all of nature has its own beauty. And when that natural beauty is there, I just lose myself in it. And then, as if it's in a dream, the scene just paints itself for me. Yes, I consume this natural setting. I devour it completely and whole. And then when I'm through, the picture appears before me complete. But it's so difficult to hold it inside. Then, what do you do? <laughs> I work, I slave, I drive myself like a locomotive. Madeleine Engel's Walking on Water is a wonderful book that I've been reading recently, and she writes that an artist must be a servant to art, and that the art says much more than the artist knows or can comprehend. When the work takes over, she writes, then the artist is enabled to get out of the way and to listen, also implying the work has this mysterious uh, entity about it. It's not voodoo, but the work does have a life beyond itself. I'd like to start with clay. And clay is this crazy material 
Can anybody tell me what it's made out of, by the way? Say it again. Water is part of it, yeah. But no, there's this substance here. What is it? It's not dirt. Anyone? Sand, yes. Yeah, sand is, is a clay, is a rock particle. That's a large rock particle, and there is sand in here. But smaller microscopic particles are here. The clay has to be worked physically. So I get my upper body workout in. Wedging clay. And it's thrown on a wheel like this. Spun. Centered. This is important. Yeah, a large hunk of clay. It's important to be strong, but it's not about strength. It's about this zen of finding the center and holding it, coning it up. Helps to center it and back down. Just enough water to keep it lubricated, but not too much to make a huge mess. You don't have to make a mess with it. And then I open it up. I could do this blindfolded. I've made several thousand of these. But it's a magical process since the time I saw Carl Heisman do it 45 years ago. I said, I'm going to learn how to do that. I was a slow learner, but stubborn. So I got it, kept at it. And once you open it, you have to pull up the sides. And notice I'm adjusting the speed. And I'm adjusting my fingers are finding each other. They work as one, pulling. Like so, use your whole body. The idea is to get height. And you know, there's a really critical thing about clay that I need to mention. I, I should have mentioned it when I was centering it first. That's the first thing you have to learn how to do. But without a centered ball of clay, you can't make a pot because the off-centeredness just gets exponentially worse. And it's like, uh, yeah, it'll fall down. It's like whipping a dead horse. Interesting phrase. Uh, I like to use it simply because to emphasize the fact that you might as well quit and start over. So the obvious metaphor with this clay that I'm working with and the fact that it's centered is that we have to be centered in Christ. Without being centered, we'll fall down. Things won't go so well. It's about being obedient, isn't it? Clay is also something that I should have mentioned earlier. Um, it's composed of a lot of different components, five or six different chemicals, uh, different kinds of uh, rock formations, chemical rock, uh, uh, alumina, silica, etc. And like clay, we have all these components and experiences in our lives and doubts that aren't obvious on the surface. Do you ever feel like you're a nobody? 
You ever wonder, what am I going to do for my life's work? Am I going to find a, a, a mate for life for young people? These are big questions. Bob DeSmith, some months back, mentioned a phrase that I always think about. Everyone is fighting a battle. Everyone. A great battle. For some of you, those battles are huge. Uh, to be accepted. Uh, what about rejection? That's an issue that's uh, critical for all of us. Okay, uh, so I've got a rather nondescript cylinder. It's starting to take shape, starting to pull up. I need to concentrate and make sure that it, that I don't overwork it or go too fast. Use just around a, a right amount of moisture. And it's this point that in Jeremiah's ministry, the Lord said, go to the potter's house, and there I have a message for you. And in Jeremiah 18, the verses follow 4 through 6, but the pot that he was shaping from clay was marred in his hands, so the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as it seemed best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter does, declares the Lord, like clay in the hand of a potter, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. So as I mentioned, it's pretty easy to mess up a pot. And sometimes you can straighten it out. If it goes too far, you can't. You have to start over. Sometimes the top is marred. I'll take a needle and trim it like this. It's pretty slick, right? It does look magical, right? It's not magic, people. It just appears that way. Lost my sponge. So we'll go ahead and finish this pot. I will often take a rib like this. It acts as a lard wide finger for support. It stabilizes the wall and removes what we call slip, which is this wet clay. Uh, too much slip uh, weakens the pot. Give it some shape, more pressure on the inside. Now on the outside. These are pots that I've made, by the way, in case you haven't figured that out. I like to give it um, shape on the top, what I call classical round. It gives it lift. There's an anatomy to a pot. Believe it or not, you'll be tested on this. Foot, shoulders, neck, and lip. To work in the top of a pot, it's called necking. Go to high schools and I say it's called necking and everybody starts laughing. <laughs> what are you guys talking about? So I'll finish this up, pour out the lip. That's a decent little pot. Um, when I do these uh, presentations in church, I ask them not to sing the old favorite, I am the potter and you are the clay. Uh, not that there isn't truth there, but my message about clay and pottery is that each piece is different. And like we are, each different, 
the potter, every piece has a different shape. The two on the bottom are glazed the same way, made the same way, and yet they look different. And I think that uh, it's important for me as a potter and an artist to have a dialogue with the piece itself, to uh, let the piece sort of decide to dictate uh, what I should do, listen to it, in other words. So one of the things I like to do is, uh, is put a, uh, a, a coating on it and, uh, well, I'll just, I'll just wipe my hands here. Take iron oxide, and here's some of that gestural mark. If you don't like my abstract paintings, everybody loves the marks on my pots. They're the same marks. What's going on? I think it's because people understand abstraction when it's servant to functionality. We're very pragmatic, aren't we? It's our, it's our best reform foot forward. And that finishes this pot, more or less. Have to live with it to see. There's also a section in the Bible, uh, the next chapter of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 19. And it reads, then break this jar. While those who go with you are watching and say to them, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I will smash this nation and this city just as this potter's jar is smashed and cannot be repaired. To the point that they will bury the dead in Topeth until there is no more room. For God is not a safe God. So what's that like? It's a pretty clear example, isn't it? Cannot be repaired. I don't want to end on this note. <laughs> I want to end on the note that we have a merciful God, a God who loves us and wants us to be his children, to follow those commands, to praise him, to believe in him, and to practice what I call a healthy obsession when it comes to your life's work and praising God. Thank you. Sorry, one more time. Say thank you to Jake for doing this with us today. But I got to ask you to stand. I want to pray over you uh, in, in closing as we send you out, and this will be your parting blessing as well. Our Father and our Creator this morning, we receive reminder again. We are in your hands. We are made from this earth. You have given us life. We reflect your intentions. We receive your will and your mastery over us. Father, we glory in the fact that you even have dialogue with us, that you want us to speak, even as your creation. Father, help us to do this well, both in praise back to you and just reflecting the beauty that you've put within us in this world. To achieve the identity for which you had in mind for us and that you would find glory through it all. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Have a beautiful day.